as you know, there's been a big transition in music over the years. Anytime there's a transition within the church, as we'll be looking at at some other point, there's always been a lot of fussing and fuming over the changing of music. But the history in this song is in Watford, England. There was a congregation called, the name of the church was Soul Survivor Church. It was a young congregation, and it was very effective in reaching their community for Christ. And this, as you can imagine, is quite an accomplishment because England is very cold to the gospel, which is sad because that's where our roots are as a nation came from. But part of the reason for the fruitfulness of the souls was the Bible-based preaching and the passionate, vibrant preaching of the Word of God and the music that was led by Pastor Matt Redmond. However, slowly over time, the music became a place of, as he puts it, a connoisseur of praise instead of participants of worship. It came to the point where the people were coming for the show and for the performances. To hear the bands instead of hearing the preaching and passionately worshiping God. As a result of that, the pastor saw what was happening, thank God. But for a period of time, their singing was done without any musical instruments whatsoever. He went from one extreme to the other. But in that time, God had been working on his heart. He wanted to bring a balance to where it needed to be. As a result of that, he wrote this song. That's why he says, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry for what I made it to be. It became more of a, a uh, um, personal thing, or not personal thing, it's not what I want, an entertainment thing, rather than a worship thing. And he brought it back to balance. And that was the result of this song that came out of it. He didn't want to ever lose sight of the fact that our worship is for Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, in many churches today, that is not the case. The music has become the entertainment thing, and that's what builds their churches. It's built on the entertainment. And, and we, of course, as, this, as a church, do not want to go that route. Our music is not to be for the purpose of entertainment. It's, be for the, it's actually to be an outflow of our worship of Him. And that's why we're looking at these messages in regard to music and our worship. And so I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're actually going to go back to the Old Testament, but I want to show you why we're going to jump back there in just a moment. After Christ's resurrection, our Lord had a conversation with some men on the Emmaus Road. There's a lot of things, in fact, if I was Christ, I'm not sure I would have had the conversation that he had had. I would have gone in a different route. But that's why we're going to look at this, because we want to see from his perspective where we need to be and where he directed the folks' attention. Because even though we're looking at some of these things in regard to music, the whole focus is worship. And so really, in a sense, our, more, our messages here lately are more on how to worship and what is our heart behind the worship because I'm convinced without a doubt that uh, in fact we could bring in a bunch of great singers not that you're not great singers <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> 
But you know what I mean? We could bring in a church full of professional singers and they could sing the notes well. They could wow us with their music. But if their purpose is the excellence of their singing, God will not honor it. So we may not be the most beautiful singers in all the world, but if our heart is where God wants it to be, God is extremely thrilled. And that's where we need to be. That's all God's looking at. Now, the choir sings and those who sing special music, they work hard to sing their notes well, not for the purpose of wowing you with, wow, oh, they hit that note well, because the, most of the authors of these songs that we sing, they design the music to enhance the words that we're singing to increase our focus and worship. That's where it needs to be. And so that's where the emphasis, even when a choir, we pray, we pray that God help us to hit our notes right to enhance the message. Not to wow the people with the music. But in Luke 24, when the Lord's on the Emmaus road with these men, in verse 24, we read, and a certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But to him, they, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. O that the Christ who have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. But now notice what he did. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He couldn't take them to the New Testament yet, could they? It didn't exist. So he took them back to the prophets. That's where we're going to go this morning, to a little bit, because it says it went back to Moses. What's significant about Moses? We need to understand that, because it should enhance their worship. It should enhance our worship. And so these men kind of lost sight of things. I forget the name of the song, but some of you will remember it. We sing these words in that song. And I love this song because of these words. Because I can identify, and I think you can too. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How many of us can identify with that? I can. It's easy for us to do that. Just as the church in England did, they got carried away with the wow of the music. But they lost the worship of it. So let's now be reminded of what God provided for Israel that would help them keep their focus on their Redeemer. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. There's a lot of scriptures here that we probably will not look at because if we looked at them all, we would never get done this morning. So you might want to make some notes, refer back to them later this afternoon, uh, sometime this week. But in Exodus chapter 1, 11 through 14, we read these words, Therefore, and, and again, just in case your mind is not really focusing well here on where we're at in Exodus, 
Egypt has grown now from 70 individuals to over two and a half million in the land of Goshen. And they're under the slavery of Egypt. And Egypt is using them to build their pyramids and to build everything else. And they are getting great. In fact, they were concerned. There's more of them than there are of us. If they ever decide to team up with the enemy, we're done. We got to slow them down. So they made them work harder. I guess they figured if the guys were hard, working twice as hard, they'd never have time to father children. So we'll just make them work harder. It didn't work that way. It worked the other way. They started having more kids. So then they said, okay, ladies, when you go in to give birth, if it's a boy, kill it. And God wouldn't allow the ladies to do that. But we find here in verse 11 of chapter 1, Therefore they set test baskets over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, uh, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in the dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made uh, their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field and all their service in which they made them serve with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke of the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shipra and the other was Pua. And he said, who are when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see them uh, on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but save the male children alive. Now, we know what came out of this. Moses was put in the bulrushes and, and Moses was spared and by God's design was went into the Pharaoh's court and was protected and eventually became the leader of uh, Egypt. But look at verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded and all his people saying, everyone who is born of you should be cast in the river and every daughter you shall save. Now chapter 2 verse 23. <coughs> Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. This is what God was looking for. The Israelites had not been very godly individuals up to this point. But now they're crying out to God. And we know this is part of God's plan to bring them out of Egypt, to bring them into their own promised land like he promised. In fact, I think it's interesting. Why did God put them in Egypt in the first place? Why didn't he just take them to the promised land? I often wondered that. Why well, go through this 400-year period when they could have been going to the promised land? That well, was pointed out to me by a, a much more scholar uh, Bible study than I am, but if they had gone to the promised land, what were the people like in that land? extremely, extremely ungodly, bloodthirsty people. And knowing the tendency of the Israelites, what would those people have come like in that 400 years? They would have become just like that. So God took them to Egypt, and where did he put them? In Goshen, completely separate from Egypt. Because what was the Egyptians' attitude about the Israelites? They were scum because they were shepherds. So God allowed them, even though they weren't totally focused on God like they should have been, He allowed them for 400 years to grow up in the land of Goshen, 
separate from those who would more dramatically influence them if they lived among them. They did not intermarry with the Egyptians. They stayed among themselves and came and grew up to be the Israelites that God had designed them to be. So God put them there for that particular reason so they become a great nation of two and a half million people. Now he's ready to take them and move them into the promised land because now with the events that are going to come that we're going to look at here quickly with the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, and I, it wasn't any mistake that they were 40 years in the wilderness to begin to prove to the Egyptians and the people that were coming, this God is taking care of these people for 40 years. And it was more time, to, I believe, those 40 years was to fine-tune these people spiritually because they weren't exactly godly when they came out of Egypt. And God needed four year, 40 years to begin to fine-tune them more as they moved into the promised land. And so that was the purpose of what was going on here. So we see that the Jewish babies were to be destroyed, but they didn't. They were enslaved uh, and treated harshly. They cried out for help finally. And God then reveals himself in Exodus chapter 2. And again, we're not going to read all these details here, but you're familiar with how Moses was rescued by his mother who put him in the bulrushes. And, and what, what a, you know, no mistake, was it Miriam found him and, and, or was watching. Pharaoh's daughter found him. Miriam says, I know a woman that could nurse him. And mother gets to raise Moses anyways. And I believe Moses' mother was godly because I believe she indoctrinated him well with what, who God is. So when she entered, he entered Pharaoh's court, and years later, he had a choice. Either stick with Pharaoh's court or follow Israel. He chose what his mother had taught him. No mistake by God, but any stretch of the imagination. But then we see in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, And the angel Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. We're all familiar with this story or this history. God speaks to Moses in verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. When's the last time a bush spoke to you? And is on fire at the same time. He had Moses' attention. And then God shows compassion in verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Again, looks like a very negative thing. But this negative thing is developing into a positive thing because God is now about to move them out. He's accomplished what he wanted to in letting the nation grow to be a great and number, numerous people. Be interested to know, just thought in my mind, uh, and Mike's not here, he could probably figure this one out for me. I wonder how many total people lived in the promised land before they got there, among the Hittites, the Amorites, and all those people. I wonder how many people occupied the land at that time in comparison to the two and a half million people that were coming out of Egypt. Be interesting to note that. I'll have to see if we can find that out sometime because God was certainly had enough people to be able to conquer them at this time. God gives Moses a promise in verse 12. And so he said, I will certainly be with you. Do we get that? I certainly will be with you. 
the same God that was with Moses is the same God that's with us today when we're going through difficult times. Because God knows the days are coming ahead were not going to be easy. And He needs to hear that often. And it shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God on this mountain. He's got a promise. They're going to do that. So God reveals His character. Again, we're not going to look at these verses. I'm just going to state them. But in Exodus chapter 4, 2 through 9, God reveals His power. As he goes before Pharaoh, throws his rod down and becomes a serpent. He does all these miracles to let them know that um, my God is the true God. Because I think it's interesting too that Pharaoh's wizards did some of those things themselves. And then we saw in Exodus chapter 3, as he's there before that burning bush, he said, don't come any closer, but take off your shoes. A sign of you're in a holy ground here. I'm not sure what, I don't understand the mentality of taking the shoes off, but it was something they understood that when you are in the holy presence of God, you're not allowed to wear shoes. Maybe that's where the West Virginians came from, you know, bare feet. <laughs> but then God is preeminent. There's one passage I would like us to look at, Psalm 33. You and I need to be constantly asking ourselves, is God preeminent in my life? Which means, is He first place? Do I live my, is my whole life centered around what God's doing in my life? And am I willing to accept what He's doing as of God? Psalm 33, 10-14, we read, The Lord brings the counts of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. From the place of His dwelling, He looks on the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. He is preeminent and must be. He provides, and we know how He provided with protection. He promised them in uh, Exodus chapter 6. He promised, I will be your God. Again, we won't turn there, but because um, there are other scriptures we'll be looking at as we go along here. But we know the history. I will be your God. I will not abandon you. And they forgot that often. I was reading this week in my devotions uh, when Christ walked on the sea to uh, the disciples. He said, get in the boat and we will go to the other side. He did this twice actually. He was with them once and they got into a big storm and they got into a panic. All they had to do was remember, he said we were going to get to the other side. Therefore we can't sink. <laughs> and then he sent them across the Galilee again. He was in a mountain where it was nice and safe. Did he know they were going to enter a storm? He sure did. He deliberately sent them into a storm. This time he's not with them. But they still remember, needed to remember the words he said, you will get to the other side. But then when he came across that walking on the water, he said, it is I. It is I. Three simple words. That when we're in a turmoil, 
We need to remember, it is I. I am with you. I have not abandoned you. And he's trying to communicate this to the Levites, or for, well, the Levites, but the Israelites. Moses tells Pharaoh to let his people go so they can serve God. We know the details. Pharaoh eventually lets them go, but boy, what did he have to go through to get to that point? He did not want to give up. The priests remind us that Christ is our high priest. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 19 through 25. I'm sorry, Hebrews 9, 1 through 11 is what I want to look at. We'll look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 in a moment. Then indeed, the fir even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. For the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which is the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tab tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, speak, cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things were, had been thus prepared, the priests always went in to the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Notice it says in ignorance. <laughs> if, if you didn't know it was sin, God would take care of it. But if it was sin, a deliberate, and there's more responsibility involved. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshy ordinances imposed unto the time of Reformation. Once again, the author of Hebrews taking the Jewish believers back to the Old Testament and reminding them of the tabernacle. Now, the lamb, we're familiar with that and how this all led up to that. Our focus of worship I think I got ahead of myself for a little bit. But God reveals himself against God, the Egyptian gods. We know how God had ten plagues targeted against each one of Egypt's gods. Israel needed to see their God was greater than the Egyptian gods because I think some of them were polytheistic in their thinking. But that final plague, and again, we're not going to take time to look at it because it takes two chapters of Exodus. But I simply remind you that they had to choose a perfect lamb. 
without blemish, demonstrating the perfection of who Christ is. That lamb was to spill its blood. They were to catch it in a basin. They were to cut its throat, catch the blood. Proof that they meant business with God and they were going to trust Him. They were to take that blood and sprinkle it over the doorpost. I believe the significance of the doorpost is simply this. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, it's not meant to be private. We're to walk out of our homes and reflect the blood of Christ to those that are around us. I believe it was to be a picture to the rest of the neighbors. We are followers of Christ even though it's bloody. And they did so, those that did, anyways. Then we know the death angel came. And if that blood was not on the doorpost, the firstborn, not only of their children, of their families, but of their cattle, of their sheep, the firstborn of everything died. All through Egypt. And as amazing as it is, there were Jews that didn't believe it, and some lost loved ones as a result of it. Can you imagine being the firstborn in a house and they haven't put the blood on the doorpost? Can you imagine what that must have been like? <laughs> I think I would have gone to another home where I saw blood on the doorpost. The necessity of the blood. Hebrews 9.22. If you're still there in Hebrews, it says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, again, we need to see the contrast here between the Egyptians' gods and the Israel's God. There's a tremendous contrast here. Of all the Egyptian gods, which they had at least 30 different gods, how many of those gods provided some form of redemption for their people? None of them. There were gods that were going to give them favor. They were going to give them, provide their food and give them safe and give them good health. But there's not one there that was atoning for their sin. But look at Israel's God. Their very God. God himself sent his own son to spill his blood to take care of the sin issue. That's what makes our religion, as you want to call it that, our belief in God, unique. Because there's no other religion on the face of the earth where their God does something on behalf of his constituents, us. Tremendous contrast was being made between the Egyptian gods and the true God. That is what the Jews were to see, and that's what the Egyptians were to see. And eventually, as they moved closer to the promised land, that's what the rest of the people in this heathen land were also to see. It was not just a way to demonstrate that I can do whatever I want among people. The emphasis was the picture on the necessity of shed blood for the atonement of sin. We're all sinners, and we all need this shed blood. I trust that's why we're sitting here today. We realize that Jesus Christ spilt his blood on our behalf that we might have our sins forgiven. So the Jews had a very, very practical object lesson here that began with a lamb. God was seeking to make it possible for them to be delivered from their sin and to be reconciled with him. Then Exodus 25 through 28, the tabernacle, which where I got ahead of myself for a little bit. 
Each piece of the tabernacle reveals something about God. Again, this was not just an elaborate way to have a mobile, a mobile church. Now, they were mobile. In fact, you can look in the book of Leviticus. No, I think it's Numbers. In the 40 years that they were in the wilderness, they moved 52 times. That was not just for the purpose of being mobile. Another object lesson was given to them that they could see every day. One major object was the pillar of fire at night. You ladies had your nightlight. During the day, there's a pillar of smoke. Again, have you ever tried to imagine what it must have been like to be in this huge encampment? In the middle of it was this tabernacle with a large courtyard around it. And every day, you could look out your, and all the tents faced that way, every day they could look out their tent door and they could see that cloud, that pillar of smoke, reminding them that God is with us. And then at night, when many of us get nervous about the dark, I'm, how many ladies have a nightlight? <laughs> All they do is look out their tent and see this pillar of fire every night for 40 years. What was fueling that? <laughs> Who knows? But God's presence was there. But there was the altar for the offerings. God is just. And requires a punishment for sin. For sin. For if there's no punishment for sin, there's no way you and I can be reconciled with Him and have a relationship with Him. So there was this bronze. There was these altars that were there, the bronze uh, altar, <coughs> where they had to bring when they sinned a lamb or a goat or a bull, depending on your wealth, depending on what you had. If you were, there was even no excuse for being dirt poor. You could go out and catch yourself a pigeon and bring it. But God wanted them to be serious about their sin because he wanted to be reconciled with them. Then there's the bronze laver. Big bronze laver. They indicate the need for cleansing as we approach God. They physically had to wash their hands and, and wash their face and an and, and, and illustration of God, I need to be cleansed before I approach you. Forgiveness is possible. Have you ever talked to someone who said, I've sinned too much and there's no way God can forgive me? It does not exist. It does not matter how sinful you may be. God will forgive anyone if they would just come and let him cleanse it. Then there was a table of showbread. As a reminder that God was their provider. Twelve loaves of bread, one for each tribe. He was not singling out any one tribe. I am going to take care of all of you. And we know that he did by the manna. Again, I think that was a very unique type of food they could of course, I don't know about you, and I think they, well, they did get tired of it, didn't they, after a while? <laughs> Give us something beside the manna. And he did. He gave them quail. <laughs> and then they got so sick of that. Then there's the golden lampstand. He was their light to the truth. 
How much do we crave the truth today? One way you can tell how much you crave the truth is how much time do you spend in the Word of God? I hope today is not the first time you've picked up your Bible this week or the last until next week. We should be reading and meditating on God's Word because the truth sets us free. We need the light of the truth of this book. And we're not going to get it unless we read it and study it on our own. Then there was the altar of incense. The incense was a picture of our prayers. And again, it just blows my mind that Almighty God wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to have a conversation with me. Now Thursday, um, there was a Harrison County uh, Commerce meeting in Clarksburg somewhere. We got lost getting there, but we finally found it. But our speaker was our illustrious Senator Manchin. Now, we were right up front. Well, we had a front row seat. Could have been just great to go up and sit down and chat with our Senator. And even though he's a Democrat, he's one of the few Democrats I really have a great respect for. I think he's more Republican than he is. And even after his speech, the man's got his head on right. I think we're blessed to have him as a senator in many ways. I think he's really trying to do the right thing. But as great as he is, Almighty God wants to have a conversation with me. And I can do that every day, anytime I want, by just simply talking to him. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for us when we get into that final stage of eternity? have complete freedom to talk to him anytime we want. There might be 10 billion people in heaven and we can all converse with him at the same time and he's never going to say, now be quiet because Nia wants to talk to me. <laughs> no, it's not going to be that way. He's a spirit and he'll be able to listen and have a conversation with all of us at the exact same time. That's an awesome God. And that's what he wants. But he's not going to wait for us to get there. We can do it now. And when we do that on a regular basis, Jesus, our God, becomes our very best friend. Because we can tell him anything. We can tell him all of our hurts and our pains and our fears. And he understands. He's been there. Then there's the Ark of the Covenant. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of grace. He did not have to send His Son. His Son did not have to come. But He loved us enough. As we looked in our Sunday school lesson this morning, look it up sometime, Hebrews 12, 2. In that verse it said, Christ considered it a joy to go to the cross. Now some of you had surgery. I've been with you before you go into surgery. I've never ever seen anybody, boy, I'm excited about this. This is, I'm looking, this is going to be super. They're going to cut me up. Christ didn't exactly do it that way when it went to the garden either, did he? But he, there was still a sense of joy to do that. He was willing to go to the cross, endure what he did for you and you alone. That just 
is beyond my comprehension, but he's a God of mercy. The Ark of the Covenant proved that. Then there was the Holy of Holies. What was the significance of that? The Holy of Holies was simply a place that God was telling Israel and us, I want to dwell among you. Now, how many of you have a Holy of Holies in your home? You do. You are it. You ever stop and think about that? Where does he dwell? The Holy of Holies is right here. So it's not in your home, it's wherever you are. How much closer can you get to God than that? You are the Holy of Holies. That should alone should cause us to worship, shouldn't it? And so, now we don't have to go anywhere to get to the Holy of Holies because what happened when Christ died in the temple, the veil was rent in two because now we don't need a human priest to approach him. Our high priest made it possible for us and he indwells within us. In Hebrews 9 that we looked at earlier, 1 through 11, and now Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 makes this point clear therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having your heart sprinkled from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. So today, we've all brought our Holy of Holies together as a body. And we're here to be an encouragement to each other. I'm sure if I hand out a piece of paper to every one of you and ask you to write down what's been troubling you today or this week, everybody would have something to write down. It could be your finances, it could be a job, it could be health issues. We all have something that we can really focus on and get bent out of shape about, can't we? And we need each other's encouragement. And so God brings us together once a week to strengthen each other. He is the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. He is worthy of our worship. Let's turn to Revelation 5, 12. Again, referring to the Lamb, one of my favorite songs is Worthy is the Lamb. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. For the Jews, the Lamb was significant. 
for us it's not quite so significant because we're not going to the temple every week with a lamb sacrifice or even once a year. But we have recorded for us it was significant. I believe that's one reason it's put in this, this verse, worthy is a lamb, because it's re being written to the Jews. Because the tribulation period is for the Jews. And they have now been allowed to reestablish their worship of the temple because the temple's been rebuilt. They're starting their sacrifices again. So all these object lessons that we've just looked at are becoming fresh to them once again. We have the 144,000 prophets that are preaching the word. And for the first time in thousands of years in the history of, of Israelites, they're beginning to see who is this lamb again as it was in the days of Egypt. And that's why we will see during the tribulation period thousands upon thousands, maybe millions upon millions of Jews that will come to know Christ. Many of them will lose their lives. Zechariah 13.8 makes it clear. Two-thirds of all Jews that are alive during the tribulation period will be killed because they put their faith in the Lamb. But it's worth it to die for the Lamb. We may see that in our own day. If things continue on the path that they are in our world, it might happen before the rapture takes place. And the only way we're going to get through those things, we've got to keep our eyes on the Lamb. He is worthy. So we no longer use a literal temple and all that goes with it. I think we're grateful for that, aren't we? Because we would all had to come today and out in the parking lot there would have been a, a laver out there. We would have had to wash our hands. Then we would have had to take our lamb to the altar and burn it before we could come into church today. Would that be a hassle every Sunday? The Jews did that. God has now delivered us from that, thank God. It's His blood that makes it possible for us not to have to do that. But the Jews worship Christ. He was their object of worship. And Christ took them back to that when He came out of the grave. He took them back to Moses to remind them of these very events that we've just talked about. They needed to be reminded that He was. But I want you to notice in Exodus 32, again, uh, it's hard for me to understand how these folks could do what they did, but they did it. We know Moses went to the mountain. God's up there with him for 40 days, 40 nights. Joshua's up on halfway up the mountain with him. And they're getting impatient. I think we all remember what happened. Aaron, the priest, the high priest, says, take your gold earrings and give them to me and we're going to make a god. Can you imagine that? They've just seen ten plagues in Egypt. They've just seen the Red Sea part. They've just seen this pillar of smoke, this pillar of fire, and manna coming down from heaven. And we need another god? Well, as Aaron said, well, Moses, we just threw this gold into that fire and this popped out. How stupid do you think Moses was? But notice what it says here, verse 17. 
And then Joshua heard the noise, notice the word noise, of the people as they shouted. And he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. Make note of that. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor is it the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. I think that is significant. They are worshiping a false god. And notice what their music sounded like. It was not melodious. It wasn't joyous. It sounded like the noise of war. What does some rock and roll music sound like? <laughs> and so it was. As soon as he came near the camp, they saw the calf and the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hand and he broke them. Now, to get a little more perspective on this, look at verse 6 of chapter 32. Verse 5, Aaron builds an altar. Then he arose up early the next day, offering burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. They are mixing what God told them to do with what they decided to do for a religion. But notice what they added to it. And the people sat down to eat and drink. That's not bad. Doesn't sound bad anyways. But look at that last phrase. And rose up to play. Now for us as kids, that sounds like fun. Oh, praying. You know what that rose up to play means? The nation had become a sexual orgy. Immorality ran rampant. In the light of the verse that we just looked at, I think that the musical had a lot to do with to get them where they were. They tried to make it righteous by doing the peace offerings and the other offerings to make it look good. And doesn't man do that all the time with his religions today? They try to mix a little bit of truth with what they want. But how quickly these individuals had turned their backs away from God and gone back to sexual immorality and their music, I had no doubt, had a lot to play with that. Just like the music of the world today does. That's one reason we need to teach our young people to avoid listening to rock and roll because rock and roll has one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to encourage immorality, loose living, riotous living, rebellion against the parents, rebellion against society. And there is no place for it in our lives as adults or young people. And we as young parents need to teach our children and encourage them, do not make these choices. For what you put in your brain is exactly the way you're going to act. These folks did that. They had forgotten all that guy was doing that quick. As horrible as that is, are we any different? Can we be any different? Now we see what's taking place in some of our churches today, and I don't believe there's any of our churches, I would hope not anyways, that are becoming immoral inside because of the music they're playing. But it is certain there are churches that won't deal with sin. They may have great music. They may even have great preaching. But if they're not dealing with sin, 
what good are they doing? It's all in service, as Christ called it, hypocritical. It makes me feel good inside, but I have no relationship with God. So as you look at this passage that we began with in Luke 24, after Christ's resurrection, it seems like I would have shared some other things, but he took them right back to the prophets. He took them right back to Moses. He reminded them of the sacrifices of the Lamb. He reminded them of the tabernacle and all the significance of that because it all pointed to Jesus Christ. As Matt Rebin wrote in that song, it's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about you. And in their church, in a sense, they did what Israel did. They got away from being Jesus and they got into the entertainment business. Israel got into the entertainment business. They found it entertaining to do the things that they did. But it took them a long ways from their relationship with God. And so immediately after Christ's resurrection, he directed them back to the truth. These teachings were more than sufficient to clearly reveal all that they needed to know about Christ. It was to develop a spirit of worship in their hearts. Because in a sense, what had just been taking place here was nothing more than what happened in Egypt. And God knows that these saints could very easily have gone astray. And if they were smart, they went back and looked at Moses and the prophets and saw the mistake they made, and they drifted quickly away from who the true God was. They had not fully comprehended the fact that their Messiah had resurrected. Even though he told them and told them and preached them, I'm coming back. Many of them didn't actually get a handle on it until they saw him. We all know Doubting Thomas, right? I don't believe it. And the Lord says, well then, put your fingers in the holes of my hand. We never see where he did it, but seeing it was enough. Do we have to be that revealing to us to know that God truly exists and truly loves us? Or do we find it when it gets hard to fall back into the world's traps? If our worship of Him is what it ought to be, we won't do that. And so we need to go back to Moses and the tabernacle and the Lamb and remember what they teach because it all teaches us about Jesus. So as we do this, we'll not be able to hold back our worship. We will want to do it in such a way that it will bring glory to God and not to ourselves. So as we focus on our worship and our challenge of worship, only God ultimately knows what's going on in your heart when you sing. And I trust that when we start, and in fact, how many have ever been this way? You got laryngitis, you come to church, and you can't sing a note. And how hard is it to keep your mouth shut? You want to sing, but nothing comes out. And then there's some of us that are probably afraid to sing because of what might come out. <laughs> God doesn't care what it sounds like. He knows the heart. And so when we begin to sing, 
And I praise the Lord. I, I have heard some favorable reports from people who attend this church, especially newcomers, that expressed these people know how to sing. And I know it's because of where your worship and your heart is with God. We should be singing from the depths of our heart. I just can't sing enough, and I can't sing well enough. I just can't sing with enough emotion to express my worship of who you are. And if you're struggling with that, I challenge you again. And only one person asked. <laughs> but if you want a list of the attributes of God, I'd be willing to give them to you. And every day read those scriptures and begin to discover who God is. And when you see him for who he is, you'll shout for joy that he's my God. And he loves me this much. And we'll be like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as you know, preached to some very hard-hearted and stiff-necked people, his own. And they tortured him. They put him in the stocks. They made fun of him. It says he even made up a song about old Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, God, I've had enough. No more. I'm not preaching about you anymore. But in the very next sentences, but his word was like a fire in my, in my bones and I could not keep quiet. It didn't matter what the rest of his people thought. All he could see was God. And all he could do was speak about God, even though his people did not receive it. Folks, we're no different in this day, are we? Are our people in this country looking for God? They're not. But you and I need to see God so well that we gotta say something to somebody about God because he's my best friend. We don't put God behind us. We put him ahead of us. And we promote him because he is our God that has made it possible for us to go to heaven when we die. That's what promotes our worship. It's all about Jesus. Father, thank you. Our Savior, when he rose from the grave, directed the peoples back to Moses, back to the prophets, to see who you really are. It's so easy to forget when we see our problems. Help us to get our eyes off the problem and back on you. And then we'll be like Jeremiah. We just can't keep quiet. We might even find ourselves singing throughout the day praises to you for who you are. Singing in the shower. Singing anywhere. Because we're in awe of who you are. And may our singing be truly from our heart because of our love for you. And it's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.